Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. So nice to be here with all of you this morning. I really want to thank uh, our sister uh, Kim for reading the scriptures for us this morning. I sprung that on her at the last moment. She didn't know what verses specifically were going to be covered. She had no opportunity to read them in the same uh, New American Standard translation ahead of time. And so that was her first reading of it. And um, I don't know about you, but I was blessed by hearing God's Word read so articulately and clearly. God's Word is far more important than my own words. And so, with that in mind, I feel a real need to rely upon the Lord to help me to explain His truth to you this morning. I don't know if you noticed, but in the verses that she read, a particular word occurred more than once. It's a word that embodies an entire concept. It's a word that none of us really likes to hear. It conjures up images. It brings back to mind memories. There is perhaps not a single person here who has not been touched in some way by this word perhaps more than once. That word is death. We don't like to think about death. We don't like the personal pain that it causes us. We don't like the dark night of the soul that death drags us through. I think all of us here have perhaps experienced the death of a grandparent, perhaps a parent, God forbid a child or a spouse. Some of us have been touched by the death of a very close friend, one who was like a sister or brother to us, perhaps the death of a sibling. This church experienced several deaths in 2022. Two of them touched my wife's immediate and extended family. No one likes the memories that death brings to us. With one exception, there is a death that we remember every Sunday and that we remember in great detail when we partake of the Lord's Supper. It is the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a death we rejoice in. That is a death that brings to mind the greatest of memories and thoughts. That is the theme according to the book of Revelation, of the new song, for you were slain, are part of the lyrics of that song. That is the focal point of this passage this morning that our sister Kim 
read to us the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This has been the focus directly and indirectly of the writer to the Hebrews in these center chapters. The point of all this, as the writer wrote, is the following, and we're still in that main point that he was bringing out, that he was leading up to in the first seven chapters. Hebrews is one letter. We can't preach the entire letter. We can't teach the entire 13 chapters in one message. It would just be a summary, but we want to look at it in more detail. And so we have to pick logical stopping points each Sunday message. This doesn't mean that one message is entirely disconnected and unrelated to the messages that went before, the passages of Scripture that went before. They are connected. You don't read a novel, oh, chapter 6, something brand new. No, you remember the first five chapters as well. They lead up to chapter 6. A book, just like a letter or an email that you might receive, is connected. Yes, it might have different subject matter within it, but it's all connected in one way or another. The closing verses of the passage that our brother David preached to us previously were verses 13 and 14. If the blood of goats and bulls sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is how it closed. It brought out the blood of Jesus Christ. If we look at that last phrase in verse 14, the key phrase, how much more will the blood of Christ, it connects to verse 15. Because of the blood of Christ, because of his sacrifice that he made when he offered himself as the sin bearer, God's lamb who takes away the sins of the world, that he offered himself on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the world, that blood of Christ, it is for this reason, his blood, his shed blood, a symbol of his death, it is for that reason that he is the mediator of a new covenant. This is how David's message and this message, how the two passages are tied together. It closes with the blood of Christ, and because of the blood of Christ, he is the mediator, the go-between of a new covenant. The title of today's message is Hold Fast to Christ, Your Covenantal Mediator. Throughout Hebrews, the idea is to hold fast. There were professing Jews who professed to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They turned from Judaism, they turned to Christ, and now they're suffering persecution. Some of them had lost even their homes and land. 
And now a renewed persecution is happening, and some of them turned away from Christ and went back to Judaism. Others were tempted to turn away and return to Judaism. And the repeated exhortation in the book of Hebrews multiple times is to hold fast. Today, Christ is brought out. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Hold fast to Christ, your covenantal mediator. Christ is revealed as the mediator of the new covenant in his own life's blood. If there's one thing you take away from today's message, let it be this. God wants you to know that eternal salvation is yours if you trust in Christ's sacrifice. Let's look at this passage. We're going to look at it under four key headings. The first is a key feature of all covenants. In verse 15, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place, all biblical covenants or testaments, their synonymous terms, have the key feature of a death. Covenant is just a legal contract consisting of promises. Sometimes the promises are one-sided. It's an unconditional covenant. One party in the contract, in the covenant, promises certain things. God did this with Abraham. It was an unconditional covenant. God only promised certain things to Abraham. The Davidic covenant that God made with David, stating that his descendant, David's greater son, would rule forever from the throne of David, the Lord Jesus Christ being that greater son. The new covenant made in Christ's blood is an unconditional covenant. You can do nothing to earn it. Simply receive it in true faith and trust in what Christ has done. But there are also conditional covenants, like the covenant made at Sinai. When God gave the law to Moses, the covenant he made with his earthly people, the Jews. That was a two-sided covenant. Moses repeating to the generation about to enter the promised land under Joshua said, if you obey, you will live. Forty years earlier at Sinai when the law was given, three times the Jews bound themselves with an oath to that covenant. All that the Lord says we will do. That's a conditional covenant. Do this and you will live. That's the law. That's the Mosaic or Sinaitic covenant. The new covenant is different. It is unconditional. God has promised eternal life and salvation to those who would just enter into that covenant through faith in what Christ has done. Biblically, all covenants involved a death, usually the death of an animal. In modern-day terminology, marriage is often called a covenant. And no, guys, marriage does not involve your death. 
You marry the right woman, and life is better than it ever was before. Amen? I'm glad that was a woman who laughed and not a man. He'd certainly be in trouble when he got home. And rightly so. In this passage, the writer is thinking of covenant in a very particular way. He's thinking of it as a testament. And we know of the Old Testament, which is the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, the New Covenant. The Bible is divided into those two main sections. But there's another way that you and I are all familiar with the use of the word testament, and it involves death, an individual's last will and testament. And so throughout these verses, this is the sense in which you and I ought to think about the word covenant. When we read covenant, think last will and testament. And all this will become a lot clearer. He's the mediator of the New Testament, the New Covenant. He's the one who has brought together both parties, a holy God and unholy man, a sinless, perfect God and a sinful, woefully flawed mankind. They were brought together. They met in Christ, as the Scripture says, righteousness and justice have kissed. The key feature of all biblical covenants and the key feature of a last will and testament is a death. The key feature of a death is absolutely necessary for where a covenant, where a last will and testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. If there is no death, if no death happens, then there is no benefit, there is no entering in to that last will and testament, into that covenant. The key feature of a death, biblically speaking, serves the purposes of redemption. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place, for what purpose? For the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. The focus here is on Christ and the new covenant. He will get to the old covenant in a moment and then return to the new covenant in Christ's blood. But it served the purposes of redemption because the old covenant made no one perfect. Those, that's an exact quote from the book of Hebrews. No one was made perfect by the old covenant. There was the continual day after day sacrifice for sin. There was the annual day of atonement to remove sin from the people of Israel. And it was done year after year after year. The law made no one perfect. Was the law flawed? No. God intended to show that no one could keep the law perfectly. 
That's his requirement. Jesus Christ made it very clear in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, therefore, you are to be perfect. Not almost perfect. Therefore, you are to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is God's standard. A holy, perfect God has to have that standard of holiness. If he allowed any unholiness, any unrighteousness, he would not be a holy God. The key feature of Christ's death serves the purpose of redemption. It pays the price. The word redemption in the New Testament has two main concepts associated with it. One is to purchase out of the marketplace. Slaves in New Testament times in the Greco-Roman world, the Greek-Roman world, were purchased out of a slave market. Paul's writings in the New Testament pictures us as slaves to sin purchased by Christ's blood out of that slave market. Redeemed. Redemption. That's the New Testament theological term for purchasing out of the slave market. The second key concept associated with the word redemption and redeemed in the New Testament is to pay the ransom price. It's to pay the price to purchase for oneself out of that market. Christ paid that price. That price was his life's blood. He shed it. He died on the cross. That's how the transgressions were redeemed. That was the price of your sin and mine. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life. In a very real sense, the debate should not be Did the Jews put Christ to death or did the Romans put Christ to death? It is my sin and yours that put Christ to death. In a figurative sense, our sin is the nails in his hands and his feet. Our sin is what nailed him to that cross. The key feature of death serves the purpose of inheritance. It's not just what he redeemed us from, God's judgment on sin, by undergoing that judgment himself. It's what he redeemed us to. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Think about that. Perhaps you've been present when an an executor of an estate or an attorney has read the last will and testament of someone. And your name is there and you receive an inheritance. Any inheritance that you receive is temporary. It'll pass away. You can't take it with you. But this is an eternal inheritance. The scripture says reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. For his salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. 
key feature of Christ's death was an inheritance for you. And the most important part of that inheritance, I would suggest, is not the crowns that he gives. It's him, the eternal person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will worship and serve forever. The key feature of death serves the purposes of validity and enforcement. For a covenant is only is valid only when men are dead. If you're named in the last will and testament, and the person who made that last will and testament is still alive, you can't march in and say, I want that inheritance. I want that piece of property, that home. I want that bank account. You can't do that while the person is alive. That last will and testament is not yet in effect. It's valid only when the testator, the person who wrote it, has died. Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago, approximately. That last will and testament, that new covenant in his blood is now valid. You can enter in by faith. It's valid, it's real, it's in effect, it's operating. It is never in force while the one who made it lives. Yes, he rose again from the dead, but he did die. He said, on the night that he was betrayed, just hours before his crucifixion, he said, as he passed the cup, he said, take, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. His death serves to validate and enforce the New Testament, the, his last will and testament made in his blood. This same key feature of death, it's not unusual. It's not something new that was introduced. The original readers of that letter that was written to them, they were quite familiar with this concept of a death being necessary. It is a key feature found in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. It served as the effective beginning of the Old Covenant. There was, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. It was inaugurated. Blood was the beginning of the Old Covenant. There were, there were deaths, animal deaths, sacrifices, to inaugurate, to commence, to begin the first covenant. The first covenant here being the Mosaic covenant, the, which we find in our Old Testament, specifically the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then in the life and history of the Jewish people after that. The key feature of a death is symbolized by the life's blood of a slain sacrificial animal. 
It was animal deaths, not human deaths, that inaugurated the Old Covenant. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book, the law, which contained all the commandments, the book itself, and all the people. The key feature of a death symbolized by the lice blood of an animal. This was the old covenant. As we're going to see, there was different blood, which was already mentioned, but will be mentioned again, the blood of Jesus Christ that inaugurates the new covenant. The old covenant was inferior It only needed animal blood, and animal blood was repeated again and again and again. The key feature of a death is the sign of participation in the Old Covenant. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. There had to be the participation in the blood sacrifices to be part of that covenant. The key feature of a death is the sign of service within the old, the old Covenant. The Old Covenant was not just something that you possessed. It was something that was active, that you lived out in your life. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood, all the vessels of service with blood. The various items that were in the tabernacle that have been explained in a couple of previous messages by myself and David, these were holy vessels. These were special vessels. This was special furniture that was in the tabernacle. It was not used for common everyday purposes. It was reserved just for use in the worship of the Lord. It involved cleansing with blood. Even those things needed to be cleansed with blood in order to be set apart for holy service. The New Testament leverages off of this symbolism. The New Testament builds upon this symbolism of blood being necessary to move one from common everyday use into special use in the worship and service of the Lord. And in the New Testament, it's the blood of Christ that sprinkles the true believer in Christ, that moves him, transfers him, as Paul writes in Ephesians, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're now under the rulership of Christ and the spiritual aspects of his kingdom. We are now like those holy vessels. We're not to engage in common sinful activities. God intends for us to be devoted to him, to be used by him, to bring him glory, to worship him and to serve him. The key feature of of a death is the sign of cleansing and forgiveness associated with the Old Covenant. And according to the law, 
the writer writes, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In the Old Testament, for anything to be cleaned, there needed to be blood. To be cleansed from your sin, the Jews offered sacrifices. Day after day, those sacrifices were offered. Year after year on the Day of Atonement, which you can read about in Leviticus chapter 16, the sins of the nation were removed. But that needed to be repeated again and again. Their conscience was never clean. They were just ceremonial, ceremonially clean, but their conscience was still defiled. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can make the conscience truly clean, can make a person truly clean forever, can truly provide forgiveness. This same key feature of a death is found in the new covenant. We know this. It's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The key feature of a death is necessary for all earthly cleansing. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies in the heavens to be cleansed with these. The blood of Christ is being used as a symbol of cleansing the tabernacle of heaven. The tabernacle of heaven is really the concepts, the holiness of God, the need for forgiveness and redemption. These concepts are the tabernacle of heaven. And they needed this cleansing. Without Christ and his shed blood, the truths, these precious heavenly truths, would not be the reality. They would not be in effect without the death of the one who made that last will and testament, Jesus Christ. The key feature of a death is necessary for all heavenly fulfillment. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. One sacrifice, as the writer will make clear. The animal sacrifices served and the sprinkling of their blood served to make the vessels and furniture of the tabernacle clean and set apart for God's use. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that sets you and I apart for God's use once for all. The key feature of the death is necessary because of the perfect holiness of God. You might wonder... Why does there have to be a death? It's because of the perfect holiness of God. It is often said that sin cannot enter the presence of God. That idea comes perhaps from this verse. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He entered with his own blood. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, you may recall from the last couple of messages on Hebrews, once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God 
the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and then in Solomon's temple. He would enter once a year with the blood of animals. Jesus Christ entered into God's very presence in heaven with his own blood. That was the blood that he took, not the blood of an animal. The key feature of a death symbolized by blood is required for entrance into God's holy presence. Nor was it that he, Jesus Christ, would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Blood was required. If the high priest went in without blood, he would be struck dead by God. Blood was required to enter God's holy presence. Jesus Christ entered for us. We enter through his blood because he has gone there first, presented his blood, as it were, to God. And he's there in God's holy presence. He sits at the right hand of God. The key feature of one particular death, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, serves to make the new covenant infinitely superior to the old covenant. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. He didn't. He suffered and died on the cross one time for all time. This makes his death and his shed blood infinitely superior. It did not need to be repeated every day or on an annual basis once for all. The key feature of one particular death, his death, serves to make the new covenant God's final word on salvation. There is nothing to be added to it. There is no addendum. There is no appendix. There is no volume two. There is no sequel in Hollywood terminology. It's not a trilogy of salvation. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he, Jesus Christ, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It is put away, it is done away with, it rears its ugly head no more in condemnation of the believer in Christ. His death is God's final word on salvation. There is no good work that you can do, no money that you can pray, that you can pay, excuse me. You can't pray your way into heaven. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't add anything to God's final word on salvation. It was the death of Christ, the sacrifice of himself that put away sin once for all. You need only to trust in that work of salvation. The key feature of the new covenant, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has benefits. The key feature of one particular death, his death, is necessary due to two particular facts in every person's existence. Obviously, to all of you that I'm speaking with today, 
You haven't experienced these two facts yet. But it is a rendezvous with destiny that no human being can avoid. Every single one will experience death and judgment. The nature of that judgment varies drastically for the believer in Jesus Christ who has trusted in him for salvation and for those who reject God's free offer of salvation. It says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. These two facts make the death of the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely necessary. All of us will one day die and stand before God in judgment. It is for this reason that there are benefits to the death of Christ so that our death does not result in us standing before Christ in judgment for our sin. He has borne that judgment for us. He cried out on the cross as he was experiencing the wrath and judgment of God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? He cried out those words in anguish and pain and woe so that you and I would never have to cry them out. He cried them out on your behalf if you will trust in him for salvation. The key feature of one particular death, his death, is necessary to provide eternal salvation for those who trust in him. So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not for judgment of your sin, but for salvation. Without any reference to sin, the scripture says right here. Sin is not going to be the issue. When Christ appears a second time, and the believer in Christ stands before him at the judgment seat of Christ. There is no reference to sin. It has all been forgiven. In the next chapter, quoting from Jeremiah, the writer to the Hebrews will say, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I, the Lord God, I will call to mind no more. He will choose never to recall those sins and hold, a, hold them against the believer in Christ because those sins were dealt with and put away once for all through the sacrifice of himself. He offered, he, he has, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. He's coming. There is no doubt about that. It is certain. The timing of it, no man knows. But it is a certain fact that Christ one day will return. He will descend to the Mount of Olives, as the prophet Zechariah says. And when he comes to those who eagerly await him, it will be without reference to sin. It'll be for salvation. 
He is the source of eternal salvation if you would place your trust in Him, not in your good works, not in what a good person you think you are. He doesn't, God doesn't want a good person. He requires a perfect person. Christ himself said it, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I don't think any of us here can claim to be perfect like God. I know I can't, not at all. So I ask you today, will you trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross? If you've never done that before, will you trust in what he has already done? When he hung there on the cross in John 19, verse 30, he says, it is finished. You can legitimately translate that, it has been completed. There's nothing you can add. How can, is something finished and complete that you can add to? No, it would be unfinished. It would be incomplete if there was something you needed to do to add to it, to complete it, to finish it. I need to ask you, was Christ right or wrong? If you think you need your good works, you need to add your good works to Christ's sacrifice on the cross, what you're pretty much saying is that when Christ said it is finished, he was wrong. He was mistaken. He didn't know better, but you and I know better. My grandmother would have said, that's chutzpah. What chutzpah to think. What pure, unmitigated gall to think that we're right and Christ is wrong. He finished the work of salvation. He accomplished it. He put away sin once for all, as the writer had just said, by the sacrifice of himself. Will you trust in that today? That's humbling. You need to admit, I'm a sinner deserving God's wrath and judgment. And there's nothing I can do in and of myself to make myself worthy of God's salvation. That's humbling. We're not good people. Our good deeds don't outweigh our bad. If there was any other way of salvation but through Jesus Christ, do you think God would have given his only begotten son to die on a cross for us? Which one of us would sacrifice any one of our children for people who the scripture says were the enemies of God? Will you trust in Christ's sacrifice today in what he's done, not in what you think you can do? And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, will you thank Christ every day for what he has done on your behalf? Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your goodness to us. How we thank you the gift of your beloved son and his salvation. Indeed, we would echo the words of scripture that thou hast done all things well. You have done everything perfectly. There is no way to improve on your plan of salvation. It is as perfect 
as you and your beloved son are perfect. And so, dear God, we thank you for him. We pray that you would draw us closer to you, that you would help us to live a life by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring you honor and glory. And Lord, we eagerly await your coming. We ask you that you would come soon. And we echo the words of Scripture, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Be pleased to accept our praise and worship through the life that we live by your Spirit, for your name's sake. Amen.